For a bit of a change, we're going to start off with a quick quiz. Five questions on the Bible. Keep your own tally. Question one, what did John the Baptist eat in the wilderness? You might remember the answer from a few weeks ago. That's locusts and wild honey. Question two, what is the shortest book in the Bible? Well, it's John's second letter to John, and it's only 13 verses long. Question three, one from the book of Acts. What colour cloth did Lydia from Theatara deal in? And the answer is purple. Question four. How many stones did David pick up on his way to fight Goliath? Well, he picked up five stones. And question five. What two people in the Old Testament never died? Well, it was Enoch and Elijah. And we can read those stories in the Old Testament. In Genesis, we read that when Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God. And then he was no more because God took him away. And we can read about Elijah in two kings. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. So how did you go with those five questions? If you've got five right, I imagine you're feeling pretty good. If you've got three or four, you can probably be confident that you know more of this stuff than most people do. And if you've got less than that, well, you might be feeling a bit embarrassed. But I don't think these are particularly important pieces of information in terms of how we know and relate to God. They're pretty much Bible trivia. And while the stories of Enoch and Elijah are both significant, grouping them together, I think, trivialises both stories. But the point I want to make with this is that knowing this sort of stuff feels good. I know those things, and most people don't. But I'm a fan of trivia. In my years working at MLA, I was a member of a number of victorious trivia teams. I had the reputation of knowing lots of trivia. I know the eight states of the USA that start with the letter M. I I can tell you the names of the seven dwarves, and I can tell you that the second tallest mountain in Victoria is Mount Weathertop, and so on. Utterly useless information in day-to-day life, but it becomes invaluable on trivia night. But it is nice to know that stuff. It's nice to remember things that other people have forgotten or just never come to know in the first place. It feels good to know things that other people don't know, to have secret knowledge or just special knowledge. And of course, it feels bad if you don't know, if you're left out. There is a danger in having that sort of secret or special knowledge, though, as Paul tells the Corinthians in today's reading. He says, now concerning food at sacrifice to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, the church in Corinth at the time was growing dramatically. It was bringing together people of Jewish and Gentile backgrounds, people who had very different traditions, very different practices. And yet they were coming together as a church in a multicultural and multi-faith society. 
Think about the usual day at the Apollonia Temple Plaza in Corinth. There would be a ritual slaughtering of a bull as an offering to the various gods. And if spectators liked, they could join a procession beneath the sacrificial platform to allow some of the bull's blood to drip on them. And they thought that the strength of the bull and, of course, the god or gods represented by the bull would transfer to them underneath. And the practice of public sacrifice required that the animal being sacrificed was then divided up and part was burnt as an offering to the god, completely burned to a crisp. Part was taken by the priests for their meals. Some was given to various public officials as part of their livelihood, as their salary packages. And what they didn't need for those things, they sold to the shops and markets for general sale. Now, I won't bore you with the calculations, but let me assure you that you get a lot of meat from a single bull. 200 meals easily, even from a fairly small animal. So when, after the burnt offering, the food for the priests and what the local officials needed for themselves and their families, there was a lot of meat left over, and it would turn up at the markets. And it seems that most, if not all, the beef available in Corinth would have been, at one point, an offering to one of the local gods. So for many of the Corinthian Christians, there was this dilemma. In order to eat meat, they'd be taking into their bodies something that had been made unclean by this act of pagan worship, either because they were from a Jewish background, which totally excluded such a thing, or because they were from a pagan background, and that sacrificial meat reminded them of the life they left behind. On the other hand, if they refused to eat that meat, they cut themselves off from most social occasions. And that would mean that not only would they miss out on the fellowship, but they would also lose opportunities to share the faith that they'd recently become part of. And that sort of thing has been an ongoing problem for Christians ever since. Not so much the issue of eating meat sacrificed to heathen deities. Well, I can tell you that the closest I've been to that is eating Christmas cookies left out for Santa Claus. But we can think about things like alcohol, gambling, smoking, and so on. Christians who have historically been concerned about those practices thought they knew what was right. They knew in their hearts what was right. They had their special knowledge and they would condemn those that did the wrong thing. The Corinthian believers were quite fortunate, though, because they could write to the Apostle Paul for an answer to their questions and the uncertainties that they had. In this case, it seems that they had asked something like, is it acceptable for Christians to eat food that's been sacrificed to idols or not? Should we become vegetarians? Should we avoid interacting with people who aren't Christians? And in this letter, Paul writes back to them with a response which isn't a cut-and-dried ruling that the Corinthians were probably hoping for. Instead, he gives them an answer which is quite sensitive, but also comes with a strong warning for them. All of us possess knowledge, he says. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So there's a danger in having special knowledge. And that danger is that we think that the knowledge makes us important. If you've ever looked at the New South Wales Driver's Handbook, one of the things you'll find it highlights is that at an intersection, a vehicle will have the right of way, and some vehicles will need to yield the right of way to those vehicles. 
but you never get to simply take the right of way. And a sensible driver will take action to avoid a collision, even if he or she is technically in the right. Similarly, we need to be careful about what the impact uh, our exercise of freedom might have on other Christians. Whatever knowledge we have isn't necessarily shared or understood by everyone. Some people will need time to understand and take on board the freedom they have. Some people need time to adjust. Some people need time to move on from their old ways. The, the trouble is, is that if we have the knowledge which is special or secret, it tends to puff us up rather than building us up. So we need to ask what it is that builds us up. And Paul tells us that it's love. He goes on. He says, anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. So if we just know the rules, what we should be doing, then we're missing the point of those rules. Paul reminds us that anyone who loves God is known by him. What matters most is the relationship that we have with God. And with that in mind, Paul goes on to reinforce what they know about the acceptability of food offered to heathen deities. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that there is that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul is going back to first principles. He's stating the faith that he has and that we share. On the one hand, yes, some people sacrifice food to heathen deities, to idols, to false gods. But on the other hand, we know God the Father through his only begotten Son, the creator of the universe, has made himself known to us through his Son. So concerns about offerings to other gods should just fade away. Again, though, Paul is concerned about what this knowledge can do, and he warns that it is not everyone, however, however, who has this knowledge, since some have become so accustomed to idols until now that they still think of the food they eat as offered to an idol. And their conscience, conscience being weak, is defiled. So he says that while there's no problem eating food sacrificed to other gods, if eating that food is going to make you feel bad, feel defiled by it, then it's okay not to eat it. It's okay to reject it. You don't have to do something just because you can. But from there, Paul goes on to warning us of the danger of going too far the other way. Food will not bring us close to God, he says. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Our relationship with God isn't based on what we do or what we don't do, how many good deeds we do or how many temptations in our lives we manage to avoid or how many commandments we refrain from breaking. Our relationship with God is based on putting our trust in Jesus. So Paul says, whether we choose to eat food sacrificed to other gods or not is a personal choice, and it's not going to affect the relationship we have with God. And that's clear 
But then Paul comes in with a big but. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. So while we might be free to make various choices, if us making those choices affects others, then there is a problem. I think these days many or even most Christians will drink alcohol from time to time, or at least they won't be particularly concerned if others do. But if we meet a recovering alcoholic, then we would be foolish to drink in front of them. Or we might, in a church context, keep our traditions in place, even if we understand that we could change them, in order to help members of our congregations who can't face such a change. So we have an obligation, whenever we exercise our freedom, to be mindful of others, to be sensitive to them, to be considerate of them. As Paul says, if others see you eating the eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience, which is weak, you sin against Christ. Serious stuff. We need to remember as we think about these issues that Put simply, Paul is urging us to be considerate and to be sensitive in the exercising of our freedom. But in all of this, he is not telling us that we should compromise our faith. In fact, he reminds us here, as he does so often, that Christ died for us. And that is the basis of our faith and not the subject of freedom. And we must be careful not to compromise the heart of our faith, the, the gospel message, out of a misplaced desire to appeal to others. We need to, as we gather together, to confess our sins because we know that we are sinful. We need to remind themselves that we are forgiven by the grace of Christ. We need to open the scriptures and to seek God's word in them because we need to grow in the knowledge and love of God and we need to pray because our relationship to God is just that a relationship. So as well as listening for God, we need to speak to God as well. And we need to make people welcome, not to have secret or special knowledge. Within the body of Christ, within the church, we don't have special knowledge. We are not an exclusive club or a secret society. Our scriptures are available to all in an immense variety of translations. And we make these things available because as Christians, we want to share our faith. We have good news, so naturally we want to share it. We don't want to hold on to secret or special knowledge, nice though it may feel. And people often think about faith, about religion, as a private thing. But it's not. It's a personal thing, but it should also be a public thing. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is a public thing. It is good news not just for each of us at church, but it's good news for the whole world. And as we show our public faith, we must always be aware of the danger of pride on holding onto our secret special knowledge in an effort to make ourselves special, of trying to lift ourselves up before God and before others by pushing others down of closing doors rather than opening them. 
Paul concludes by saying, Therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat, so that I may not cause one of them to fall. Friends, in all things, we need to remember that what brings us together is faith in Christ. And that is the most important thing. But as we grow in faith, we have a responsibility to our sisters and brothers in Christ to help them to grow, a responsibility to be sensitive to and considerate of them. We should rejoice in the freedom that knowing Christ brings, but I hope we also rejoice when we give up that freedom for the sake of others. Amen.